I'm Dan Rundy. I, I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a U.S. approach to fragile states, a conversation with Dr. Skinner. Um, I got a, I'm a pretty simple guy, and um, I got a, a simple view of the developing world. There's kind of two paths. 70 countries are going to make it. There are going to be about 70 countries are going to follow the path of South Korea and Taiwan and Kazakhstan, and then we're going to be stuck Masomenos with like 30 countries. Now you can say it's 25, you can tell you it's 40, there's like seven different, you know, you know, screens for this stuff, but we're gonna be stuck with them. And we're gonna be stuck with them for a long time. And these, these challenges have doubled, you know, bedeviled multiple administrations. And I think as we get to, to you know, the, the poorest countries, this bottom billion in particular, there's gonna be really complicated uh, challenges and um, they're not just development challenges they're, they're diplomatic and political challenges there's um, there's also obviously a, a security overlay to all this and um, it's kind of a mixed bag it's uh, you know if you look at a place like Haiti it's hard to say we've had a that's been a super happy I think that's the technical term that's been a super happy uh, track record so we've got a we got a big challenge. Is that these are going to be these are going to be really tough, thorny challenges that are, we're going to be stuck with for decades. That um, if you're in the early part of your career, in the mid part of your career, for the rest of your career, we're going to be stuck with this problem. So I'm really glad my new friend Dr. Skinner uh, is with us. She's the head of policy planning, and hoping Dr. Skinner, uh, you know, might join. I would ask you to. Uh, what I do, Dr. Skinner, is why don't I ask you to make some opening remarks from the podium and we'll, we'll get started. I was the warm up act. So, so come on up and I'll. Um, Dr. Skinner has had a very distinguished academic career. She was at Carnegie Mellon before accepting uh, the, the important role of head of policy planning at the State Department. And I think she's doing a great job there. And I'm really grateful that you would join us here at CSIS. And I'll turn the floor over to you, Dr. Skinner. Thank you. Please join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out this morning and um, for the in invitation to CSIS, which is a great partner of the State Department and um, a bit of a moral compass when we start going in directions that, um, that many Americans may disagree with. But I think we're, we're on a good path and we had a spirited discussion over breakfast with a, a number of you and other colleagues. Um, so again, this is an important invitation and I hope the first of many um, I think we need to be engaging more in the administration with our track two and track 1.5 partners and CSIS is a, is a key one as one of the top defense um, and foreign policy think tanks in the world. So I'm here um, as the director of the Office of Policy Planning. My prior day job was as a professor um, where I'm used to saying what I want to say. I'm trying to be a diplomat. so. Um, it's a little difficult for me, um, so, but I am doing my best. I'm representing Secretary Pompeo, um, and he has been one who's been fully committed to the issue of addressing um, America's role in fragile states and those states that um, are unstable due to armed conflict, violence, and um, other factors that affect, affect us all. So the opportunity to talk with you about this and to hear from you is critical. Some colleagues of mine are here. They'll take notes and your thoughts will be reflected in our discussions um, going forward. Um, earlier this year, 
Um, you'll remember that Secretary Pompeo traveled to Colombia to meet with President Duque during a swing through South America. Colombia is one of our best allies um, in the hemisphere and a major free trade partner. And it actually, um, it's a great place, I think, to begin to talk about fragile states. Um, experiences there over the past couple of decades um, prove that major U.S. partnerships with other countries can make a tangible difference when it comes to promoting um, security and, and stability. But when, why, and how are the tricky parts, and that's what I'd like to focus on. Um, as you're aware, Colombia faced a series of challenges when the 21st century began. Um, they stemmed from violent um, guerrilla um, um, insurgencies led by groups like the FARC and ELN that were involved in the drug trade. The weaknesses of institutions and the resulting um, um, weak rule of law in that country exacerbated social divisions and led to violence between state actors um, or among state actors, parliamentary groups, um, and drug traffickers. But remarkably, um, the picture has changed and um, it's not perfect, but largely for the better. A watershed and in, in institution building came in 1991 when the new Colombian Constitution um, was put forth and it paved the way for even, eventual um, peace negotiations decades later. The new, new Constitution also Im, um, embedded indigenous, Afro, and women's rights within the institutional mechanisms of the state. This greater inclusion um, helped um, heighten the government's legitimacy and made um, the state more resilient to internal pressures. Once Colombian political officials demonstrated their resolve, the United States became involved primarily through its assistance program known as Plan Colombia. By aiding military and counter-narcotics operations, the United States supported the government of Colombia's efforts to bring the FARC to the negotiating table, thereby promoting peace and reducing violence. And by delivering additional non-military aid to rural, weakly governed areas, we helped Colombia focus on development, um, strengthen the rule of law, and breed greater social cohesions. cohesion. Critics would love to point out that Plan Colombia elicited controversy among some quarters. They failed to mention, though, how widely held it is for its success. The weekly standard referred um, to the Colombian miracle as a, quote, turnaround so dramatic as to be almost unbelievable. Senator Marco Rubio wrote that the Colombian story, quote, gives hope to other countries that they too can turn the tide of the fight against instability and violence. Our collaboration with the Colombian government is an example of what the Trump administration would love to continue, namely working with committed partners, strate strategically investing our resources, and sharing the burden. We have been happy to help Colombia, but it's just as important to acknowledge that Colombia has done a lot of the hard work itself. 
Today, Colombia continues to demonstrate its leadership in the region. It's working with partners to stem the ongoing crisis in Venezuela and ensure a peaceful transition of power. Here in the Western Hemisphere and across um, the world writ large, what President Trump and Secretary Pompeo are insisting upon is more discipline when it comes to allocating America's resources and more accountability once aid is distributed. Their rationale reflects political reality. In the US, there's a declining public appetite for and a general wariness to fund large-scale, once open-ended reconstruction um, efforts. At the same time, the upward trajectory of intrastate conflict shows no sign of abating. 2015 was by some measures the most violent year since 1945. And in 2016, 31 countries experienced internal armed conflict more than any other time in the last 25 years. St um, state fragility is at the center of these trends. Now, what do I mean by fragility? We had a, a great discussion about this over breakfast, and um, I think what I'm about to say represents the growing consensus. I'm referring to situations that arise from dysfunctional relationships between states and their societies. They're characterized by ineffective governance, social fragmentation, and lack of, lack of perceived political legitimacy. Fragile states are unable to protect their citizens from violence, from predatory corruption, and from subversion by external actors like Russia, China, and Iran. Sometimes their fragility even leads to complete economic, um, social, and political um, collapse. Americans see stories of these places on their TV screens and iPhones every day. And they will, and when they do, they want to do what they can, what can be done to establish um, stability and protect people's basic rights. I think most Americans feel that way. But people also wonder how much and if our own efforts are really paying off. When situations of conflict and fragility are complex, widespread, and often protracted, citizens and policymakers alike understand the need to prioritize. And I think that's where this, this discussion is in the US now. It's only natural for them to look to say, look, we will gladly work here and we will work there, but we can't work everywhere. Um, I hope in working with you, we can establish clear priorities. The Trump administration unapologetically agrees we need to focus on advancing America's core interests and leveraging our competitive advantages in fragile and unstable states. We simply cannot work in all fragile states, even when um, um, our hearts and our interest and our resources may suggest we could do it all. We know that we can't do it all. We simply cannot do it. We don't have the resources. Um, and we're spread thin in the world. Um, but also, it's inefficient for us to be everywhere um, at all times. 
when it comes to fragile states, we cannot be blinded just by good intentions and tricked by moral vanity into believing um, that we have all of the answers for all of the questions all of the time. That's a, um, a recipe for waste. It's a fantasy that hinders a more efficient and effective allocation of US resources. And ultimately, when we can't do everything that we set out to do, it undermines our values. The questions we need to answer, therefore, I think, are twofold. When, under the Trump administration, um, is it in America's interest to engage in fragile and conflict-affected areas? And what form should that strategic, as opposed to indiscriminate, engagement take? Um, there are about five criteria to guide the first question. Based on our um, security interest, we should um, work to address conflict and fragility in places where, one, they represent safe havens for terrorists. Two, their instability threatens U.S. economic prosperity. Next, the outmigration of citizens threatens U.S. domestic tranquility or strains the resources of key partners. Four, the spread of global pandemics and diseases must be contained. And or finally, geopolitical competitors like China, Russia, and Iran are exploiting institutional weakness um, for their own agendas and at our expense. Toward the second question, what form of assistance should take place under this administration? What form should it take? Um, clearly, different countries have different needs. There is no single universally um, accepted toolkit, and we understand that. Our engagement should always be tailored to localized parameters and take into account the politics and culture of these places, since conflict at its core is political as well as particular social circumstances, histories, and as I've just mentioned, culture. So we are working very hard on all of these dimensions, and again, we um, um, ask you to join us in refining our understanding of these, the whole range of social and political forces. The U.S., um, I'd like to emphasize, is out of the nation building business, um, and we must be more flexible in societies um, and how we engage with them, and how we seek to help them organize themselves. As we tailor our engagement, we need principles to guide us. One is making sure that the U.S. is using diplomacy and foreign aid to mitigate and prevent conflict. Both are essential. We can no longer wait to respond to international 911 calls, as we've done earlier in this new century, um, conflict prevention is equally, if not more, of a viable approach now, at least in our thinking, than it has been in a number of years. Let me mention a 2018 study, for example. It demonstrated that for each dollar, donor dollar, countries invested in prevention-related activities, they would save somewhere in the order of two to four times that amount over the long run. Getting ahead of problems makes sense, um, and that's a key pillar of our approach to fragile states. Second, we must work with priority states to address political, security, and development challenges. 
um, together and not in isolation. As you know, fragmented, siloed strategies result in poor outcomes. Next, we should support the select partners to build their capacity to be more resilient to internal stresses and, to, and attempts from external aggressors like China and Russia that seek to undermine their institutions. That, in a nutshell, is our approach. Strategic engagement in places that matter, sharing the burden with our allies, always coupling prevention with mitigation, and, and ensuring we bolster partners against internal and external challenges. But now I'd like to address what steps we've already taken. Do not believe the voices in the media claiming that we, we're doing, what we're doing equates to across the board withdrawal. In, a, in actuality, the Trump administration is maximizing U.S. impact in fragile states. That remains strategically important. With the U.S. federal government, we have begun streamlining the foreign assistance bureaucracy. Not doing away with it, but streamlining it. By formalizing roles across and within um, cabinet departments to improve our engagements with fragile states. That's a key pillar of our activities. The Stabilization Assistance Review, known commonly as, as the SAR, outlined a series of recommendations which we're, we are now working on. The State Department is the overall lead, and we're working closely with USAID and with the Defense Department to ensure that evidence-based outcome-oriented strategies guide our stabilization efforts. We're also in the middle of a review of all aspects of foreign assistance. That's the internal side of the equation, but we're also maximizing impact externally by, by changing how we improve outcomes in fragile states. First, we're putting um, evidence at the heart of everything we do. Talented teams within state, like the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization um, Operations, are using statistical analysis, mapping technologies, and other tools to better understand trends, risk, and opportunities for engagement. They were doing that before Donald Trump became president, but we have increased our attention on those activities um, in the last couple of years. The Office of, of U.S. Foreign Assistance Resources is identifying where our assistance has reinforced peace and stability in fragile states, where it has not, and why. We are formalizing and expanding um, the deployment of diplomats to um, risk areas. As Secretary Pompeo has said, we need our diplomats in every corner of the world. We're finding ways to better deliver assistance to fragile states. This includes prioritizing agility, diversify, diversifying our implementation partners, establishing more um, flexible procurement mechanisms, and maintaining our focus on learning and accountability. Um, to maximize impact inside fragile states, we're, we are publicly recognizing that stabilization is inherently political and transitional in nature. It is not meant to last indefinitely. We will do what is necessary to support the local host government 
for a finite period of time, but our local partners must take the ownership of their country's future. The United States is not in its, effort, in, in its efforts to stem conflict alone in fragile environments. In some cases, international organizations and agreements can be a force for good. The World Bank, for example, has reoriented considerable resources toward addressing fragile states. The UN also plays a prominent role through its Security Council resolutions, rapporteurs, peace build, peacekeeping and political mandates, and development assistance. The Trump administration welcomes these efforts so long as the entities remain accountable, aren't captured by local or special interests, and don't engage in ideological colonization. In many instances, supranational organizations, however, are less important than our support by locally legitimate authorities, and we underscore that point. Local authorities must be at the forefront of solving their own problems. Historical experience shows that we do not embrace top-down solutions and structures that are hoisted on them without consultation from superpowers. As, as my predecessor, the first director of the Office of Policy Planning, the great George Kennan once said, even benevolence when addressed to a foreign people represent, represents a form of intervention into their internal affairs and always receives, at best, a divided re reception. That's part of the reason why we need to be thoughtful about how we support fragile and failing states. After all, they're called that for a reason. They will require a delicate touch that calls for more than mailing foreign governments blank checks or implementing standard solutions. Sometimes our approach might require establishing development anchors in, in subnational areas outside major capital cities like Lagos, Nigeria. Other times, it may mean helping nations establish a stronger national identity, which can tie together desperate ethnic or religious groups into a more cohesive whole through the use of neutral languages, common projects, or strong new narratives like Nelson Mandela used in South Africa. Only by, develop, by developing a strategy to systematically counter the fragmentation that affects places can there be problems to overcome. The need for a strong national identity is the perfect note to end on because it's often neglected or misunderstood in the present day and age. A widely felt allegiance to something greater than one's family, tribe, political party, or ethnic group, in many ways, is a precondition for development. And along with a strong national identity, of course, comes the corresponding notion of sovereignty. The Trump administration supports not only our own sovereignty in the US, but also the sovereignty of countries who wish to break their, pa their path of dependency and stand on their own. 
You've heard the president's tagline, too many times, America first. But you should note that America first is not the same as America only or America at the expense of other nations. When it comes to fragile states, America first does not mean we will shrink from working in tough environments. It simply means that we will dispense with an overly, um, dispense with an overly romanticized um, view of foreign relations. We want to look with more clear eyes about how we become involved in the world. When we choose to act, our actions will be, will be based on an unapologetic focus on our own interest, and that includes our values. And even though we may do so on a more limited basis, when we do act, we will be marshalling nothing less than the full extent of our resources to help priority countries become more equipped to handle internal stresses and external aggressors like China and Russia, as I've already mentioned. Then when our work is done, we will shake hands and we will move forward together. That's the President's vision, the one that Secretary Pompeo and my office are charged with carrying out every day. It's one that we're very proud of. Um, allow me to close by thanking all of you for listening um, to this um, discussion. I look forward to hearing your questions and I really appreciate you as scholars and practitioners in really the hardest dimension of international relations. Thank you. That was, uh, that was great, thank you. Um, you know, I listened really carefully and I would argue that if maybe some folks may not have agreed with every word that was said here or every statement or how it was said, but I would argue that in almost every administration, you could say there are, and we talked about the need for multilateral institutions, the need to mitigate conflict, the need to prevent conflict, um, the ability to operate on an evidence-based and data-based basis, um, having some kind of screens for when we act and when we don't act. Um, these are all things that I think in any administration over a long period of time, um, these, are, these are challenges, as I said, that have bedeviled us. And so I think it's, uh, the administration is, is, uh, is, I think, largely restating many of the things that I think are, um, that in, in many ways, not in every way, are restating many of the things that, have, that, are, that are a constant. Um, I do think that we're, we're going to be stuck with sort of these 30 or 40 thorny, fragile and conflict-affected states. They've, um, for a long time, they're going to be with beyond, our, beyond uh, any administration. They're going to be with us the next 40 or 50 years. Um, I wanted to just uh, comment on, on a couple of, uh, of, uh, of topics that you flagged. You know, I think it's really great that you flagged the example of Colombia because I think there's so few, there very, I mentioned earlier, there are very few examples of, there are there's some successes, but that's one that's often cited as, as a success. And I think it's true that my, my view of the, of the Colombian experience is that I, I think that the Colombian elites basically decided, uh, this is my, again, you don't have to agree with it, but I, this is my view, is I think that the Colombian elites got tired of, they, they couldn't hire enough bodyguards to get to their weekend houses anymore. Like it started becoming a problem to get to their weekend house. 
and when they sent their kid to Harvard, and they said, oh, I'm from Columbia, and so everyone would say, oh, so you must be the son of a drug dealer. They say, oh, no, no, you don't understand. It's more complicated than that. Or if they were a successful business person and they went to the World Economic Forum and say, well, come on, you're not really a successful business person. You're really a, a drug dealer. That there, it started to become like the cost became too high. And so in essence, I think there was sort of, you created political will, if I can put it that way, in the, in the Colombian case. And so I've always wondered, what was going to be the cost for the Northern Triangle elites? So, so El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, that you needed some kind of political resolve. And at some point, up until now, I think elites have workarounds. They can fly to Miami for the weekend to kind of get away from it all, or they can send their family to Miami. Or At some point, when the country brand becomes too painful or too awful, I think that's often a, a way for, for change. So I think it's really important what you said about political resolve and about burden sharing. I think. Obviously, in the case of Plan Colombia, something like 95% of the, the spend was by the Colombian people, and we were sort of a, we were an important catalyst and a support. But you're right. So this issue of burden sharing is, is very, very important. But you know, maybe before before we get to some more issues around stabilization, could you just spend? Could I first start with Dr. Skinner? What what is the policy planning job, and how? What how, I know it's it's been around for a long time, but could you explain to this group? What, what, is, what is policy planning and what are you hoping to do with this role? Obviously, you, you've got a lot of things in your inbox and you've talked about the stabilization here. So tell us about what is the policy planning uh, function what, uh, and what are you hoping to do with it and how does the stabilization fit into that? Um, well, that's a lot. That's Thank a lot, and, yes. Um, and I think on the, the issue of Columbia, the way you described it, really goes to the issue of a kind of national narrative and identity that I tried to end the conversation yeah. with. Whether it comes from the elites um, or somewhere else in society at some point, I think it's a key factor in um, bringing states out of um, long periods of fragility, that they're, you know, a narrative has to develop um, that is more positive and that people buy into. And, Unfortunately, it may be sometimes, can I get to Miami for the weekend? But that may be a start um, that makes the state better in the long run. Or, or I, I don't want my kid to come home and say that they said I, I thought I was the son of a drug dealer and it yes. hurt my feelings. Right. And so how do we change that? Well, right? there are millennials all over the world, right? not just in, in the US. But on the Office of Policy Planning, um, it started in 1947 with General Marshall um, at um, the height of the emerging Cold War. Um, it's the office that had George Kennan as the first director and Paul Nitz as the second. Some of you are old enough to know those names, um, and some of you are young enough to have just been in, in college and learned about them. But the architects of containment, um, of the big ideas that guided the U.S. for the past 70 years were ac actually formed in the office um, under a series of directors. Um, and they, um, over, the, the, over the decades, um, policy planning, I think, has become a lot more operational, but in its early decades, it was the think tank idea shop for the U.S. government in foreign, foreign policy and, and to some degree defense policy as well. Um, I think the pressures of U.S. foreign policy in the late period of the 20th century and into the current period have been such that it's almost impossible to have an idea shop either at the National Security Council or at the State Department, and to some degree the Defense Department, because the pressures on the U.S. are so great, the conflicts are so overwhelming and, and um, overlapping, and there's so many of them. Um, and 
the um, U.S. president is the center of action in the world, um, and that's, that's a big burden for everyone around him, his cabinet and sub-cabinet officials and their staff. But under Mike Pompeo, he, he looked hard at um, where we are in terms of um, the Trump administration and what we seek to do in the world and the number of structural changes that we're facing and decided to turn policy planning back to its original roots. Um, so it's less of an operations outfit now um, and more of the um, think tank it once was. And I've been in the job a little bit more than six mm. months now and I've been trying to help make that transition, bringing more academics um, into short stints in government, a number of colleagues here in Washington in the think tank world, um, combined with an excellent group of, of careers, foreign service and civil service officers, we're all trying to make sense of um, the Trump doctrine. Um, the way that I see policy planning now um, in its, its current role, it's to service pri primarily the Secretary of State on big ideas, but it also, ports, it also supports the National Security Council and eventually, I hope, the National Economics Council. Um, we are the only office charged with the following. One, to look backwards and forward at the same time, to look for historical precedents when big policy decisions are being made um, and say, there's no historical precedent for it. Maybe that's good, maybe that's not so good, but we need to let you know that um, this is perhaps a departure or there's a historical way um, that will support, there is a historical episode or set of decisions that will help us make better decisions right now. Also, we have to look over the horizon um, because the future for um, most um, decision makers, especially on conflicts that are particularly um, hot and um, require lots of our attention, the future is about three days out. Um, and if you get to six months, you're, you're, you're really into the future. Second is to come at issues in, um, that the administration is facing at an angle very different than what happens in the bureaus. I have um, developed enormous respect for the regional and functional bureaus at state um, because they live a life that I don't have. Um, they have to work very, very long hours, um, often in the ops center when there is a crisis, um, and they've got to make real-time decisions. I get to think about those decisions and help advise, but they actually have to try to sort out everything all at once. Um, so they can't come at angles that are different than often the, um, the prevailing ideas that take over any building in government. So we come at an angle that's different. And three, we're a little bit brash here, but we believe in policy planning that we can provide the intellectual architecture for the Trump doctrine. Um, the way I've put it is that the president um, has a set of hunches and instincts and our job is to turn them into hypotheses, um, test them against really hard cases, then go back and say um, you're on the right path or you're on the wrong path. Since that's my job, I think I can get away with it um, because I'm not a, a typical political appointee in that way. Um, next, the Office of Policy Planning is really charged with developing the Pompeo Doctrine, which um, is, in our view, um, an attempt to systematize U.S. foreign policy and diplomacy in the 21st century around principles related to society, economy, security, and the international order. Um, 
Next, um, we often say in policy planning that our job is to give a second opinion, which means that we aren't always very popular. Um, when you get a cancer diagnosis, you don't stop with one doctor. Um, you go to more, we're the second doctor. Um, and um, finally, the goal of policy planning related to my first statement is to give the future a seat at the table in any and every interagency meeting they'll let us into. Great, that's right. great. So, so Dr. Skin, could you talk a little bit more about, you talked about reference hunches and instincts and, mm -hmm. and about that uh, uh, Amer America first isn't necessarily America, America alone, and I, I agree with that. That, could you talk a little bit about how, how talk a little bit more about how you would articulate the, the Trump doctrine one, and then could you also talk about that Secretary Pompeo is 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 doing a series of speeches across the country, and I think that's also related to the Trump doctrine and, yes. and some some of the where where this comes from. So talk a little bit about that. I I think the Trump doctrine is an evolving project, um, but before I really yeah. answer that question, I think why is there a need for a Trump doctrine to begin with? or a new doctrine at all. Um, I think that's partly because we've still been li living in the era of the um, containment doctrine, of the international um, institutions, the international economic structures that we put forth um, um, as the leader of the, the world between 1945 and 1960. That was perhaps the most intellectually fertile period of U.S. foreign policy of any period since that time. Um, and we did some amazing work. And when you think about it, we, we used the nuclear bomb in 1945. And by the early 50s, we had nuclear deterrence theory. Um, and some of the best writing coming out of policy planning, out of the RAND Corporation, and a number of other places. Um, we set up the international um, economic structure through Bretton Woods. We created the United Nations. But a lot of this work, in fact, had been done as early as 1941 with the Atlantic Charter. Mm. I would argue that we haven't had a period like that since um, that time. But think about the 21st century um, as compared to the final decades of the 20th century. Um, we had to worry on any given day about two principal actors in the world in terms of major kinetic damage that could happen, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. China had nuclear weapons, but it wasn't a competitor at that point, and, um, and China was busy winning the Cold War by staying out of the Cold War. Um, we were busy fighting with the Soviets, um, and we paid dearly in life and treasure. Um, but in the 21st century, on any given day, now, we have about 50 countries we have to worry about that not necessarily that could you know, do the massive kinetic damage of a nuclear conflict, but they can chip away at American power through cyber, through economic warfare, through informa um, information competition. It is a very different world, but we haven't theorized around the different world. I think the work that we're doing now on fragile states is one part of the theorizing that we have to do. Um, so it's necessary to have a new strategic doctrine. I don't think we've had one in the 21st century. The Trump doctrine, it, for better or worse, is an attempt to come to terms with a new structural reality that's reordering the globe. And it includes principles like nation building will not define what the U.S. does in the world, but instead mm -hmm. we will share the burden with nations 
that we will reassert um, national sovereignty because, for better or worse, um, the nation state is where most people find protection, um, have economic opportunities, um, prosperity, um, and growth. Not that international institutions don't matter, um, but we are all citizens of, of a nation. We are global citizens in a metaphorical sense, but we vote inside a country. Um, and we have aspirations in those countries. I think it's a return to a kind of political reality um, that um, just got a bit frayed um, over time. That's the president's view. Um, in addition to this idea of, of burden sharing, there's also that there has to be greater reciprocity in what we do in the world. And we've seen that expressed early on in the Trump administration on trade negotiations. Um, and there have been some early successes. Many thought that um, NAFTA could not be recrafted, but we do have the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement against all odds. These are some of the principles of the Trump doctrine. And um, as I say all the time, take, take Donald Trump out of the picture. There would have had to have been a new strategic doctrine. He just started that process. Could you talk, uh, so is it fair to say that the think tank world has its homework cut out for it in terms of helping to put this together? I think so, because a lot of this will not happen without track two. And track two has always been important in the US. And we have a more mature track two than yeah. many, but in fact, we're, we have been the model for track two in Europe and within the NATO countries. And they look more like us in that space than at any other time in, the, in their history. Um, but foreign policy practitioners and thinkers and elites are Im incredibly important because if they resist um, trying to do new strategic thinking that's outside of the box, that's sometimes uncomfortable, I think they handicap um, America's future because we're not going back to, to the world that we were in where those ideas were developed. We have new challenges that aren't going away. The, one of the biggest challenges that I like to talk about is the coming power of the global south. When you think about the last couple of decades, the countries that joined the nuclear club were from the global south. The countries that could join the nuclear club are from the global south. When you look at Democrat, demographic factors, it is a different world. When you think about China, it's the first time in our history that we have had a major economic competitor, not just a military competitor. These are new features of the international system, or features that were there that we've been ignoring. We really need you to help us um, think better, and I think instead of attacking each other, we should be working together on the hard problems. So we do need CSIS and others in the think tank world. Okay, we, will, we promise to help you with this. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Skinner, could you talk about uh, Secretary Pompeo? Is he's not running for a Senate in Kansas? He didn't tell me he was. He so. didn't tell you. He, he came to a lunch here in January, so he wasn't running for Senate in Kansas, mm -hmm. and he's not running for president. Mm -hmm. But he's making a series of speeches uh -huh. in the American heartland. Uh -huh. Why is that? You know, a number of people. I think it started. One of my staff members who's here today said that before I came to state, that there was a proposal. Um, though some in public affairs suggested that he talk to Americans, but I've heard him really um, say thoughtfully that we have to make the value proposition for what we're doing, including in fragile states, to the American people. And Trump campaigned on, when you think about it, in 2016, 
on um, having a foreign policy conversation about our role in the world with the American people. In those 30-odd flyover states that many candidates ignored, mm. he talked about some of the issues of burden sharing, the purposes of America, America's alliances. American, the American public wants to hear from our leaders. We, they understand the military because when you go into the middle of the country, everyone has a friend, yep. a cousin, or a neighbor who served in the military. But what about the diplomatic corps? It's a lot more hidden in American society. He's bringing it forward. And I think that's the, the main purpose of these conversations. Do you sense that there's frustration in, in the American people about some of, the, some of these fragile states, that there's a, a, fra a frustration that there hasn't been more success or more progress in some of these places? I think so. And I think we're hearing that as we talk to people. And that makes our work um, in this realm so important that we be more precise in what we do and that we have a clear um, narrative about why we're going to stay in some countries longer than others. So I, I read you, you had an op-ed about uh, multilateral institutions and that, uh, and I think, I, I thought it was very interesting. Could you just talk a little bit about, about that op-ed? Because I think there's, I think it's sometimes a little intellectually lazy uh, for some critics of the Trump administration to say that the Trump administration, Trump administration is anti-multilateral institutions. I don't think you're saying exactly, I don't think the Trump administration is saying exactly that. No, I think the real um, 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 statement came from the, um, Secretary Pompeo in his Brussels speech. Um, and then I just followed yes. with a statement. But we're, we are trying to figure out a more productive pathway forward with multilateral and um, regional and international institutions more broadly um, for the United States at this time. There's very little evidence that the U.S. has abandoned under President Trump multilateralism. Um, I, I would just ask you to stand up and list all the institutions that we've run away from. Um, I but there's been almost a, none. I can, um, think, I can think of almost we've none. We've pulled out, you know, Paris Climate Accord. There have been some, uh, but when you think about our commitments, they're intact. What we've done is ignited a conversation about what those institutions are going to look like in the years ahead. And, and the burden sharing. And burden sharing, but also, um, you know, what does it mean when institutions begin to have mission creep, when they ask nations to pull their sovereignty? Um, these are big questions for states, and we're finding out that the conversation's pretty complicated, but I think we'll come out better on the other side. If you think about um, the um, Donald Trump's um, statements during the campaign on NATO and 2% of defense spending, um, well, my colleagues in our Europe and Eurasia Bureau have reported in the past two years NATO contributions to mutual defense are up by $100 billion. Um, so I think that um, there's some output that's positive for um, Western security coming out of the discussion about international institutions. Um, but the institutions really have to be organized around the new and enduring threats that we face. And some, some of them have been slow to keep up with where we are in the world. And I think that's the core of what we like. Um, to push them to think about and ultimately respond to. Yeah, I mean, if I think about the United Nations, I think we're still the number one donor to the United Nations system. We're on for a number of specialized agencies. I think we're still the largest donor. We agreed to a capital increase for the World Bank, um, and I think that, and I think David Malpass led that process, and I think that that I think helped his candidacy with interna in the international system. And I suspect he's probably going to get elected 
with no no alternative candidate because I think the global system is going to say that we see we see the United States actually supports the World Bank, and I would argue that we need multilateral institutions. They're an important they're an important set of actors. They can they can have mission creep. It's true, or and sometimes um, we shouldn't just use multilateral institutions just to, to use multilateral institutions, but they have a power. They have a brand we don't fully uh, value in Washington. So they have an imprimatur. Sometimes if they lay hands on something, it's far more credible than if, if we say it. There is forms of, I'm going to call it soft law, but this SDG stuff. Now, I'm Catholic. I can hardly keep the Ten Commandments straight. I have a very hard time keeping the 17 Sustainable Development Goals straight and the 169 sub-indicators. But I will tell you that they are, have a lot of power in the world, and they're very important. I also think that the multilateral institutions are an important way for us to burden share. I think it's a, the Trump administration is emphasizing additional burden sharing. I think they are a vehicle by which we can burden share, both through the MDBs, um, through things like the capital increase. But I think we should ask them to do hard things. We need to ask institutions like the World Bank to go to tougher and harder places. And I think that's I know that's that's what's happening. So I think it's I think it is I think it's it's intellectually lazy for folks to say that the Trump administration is getting out of the international system or anti-multilateral organizations. But you can understand that there have been some, there's been some criticism. I, I do, you know, for example, for three years in a row, the administration has put forward budgets that, that have a 30% cut to, to foreign assistance and the, one, the 150 account for diplomacy and development. And I, I have to scratch my head to say, okay, we, if we want to prevent, and I, I agree with all the things that you've said, Dr. Skinner, about preventing and mitigating, we're going to have to, you know, some, there's some areas where I think it's, it's very important. I just want to list a couple. So, for example, in Venezuela, I'm hosting a meeting today about the energy sector in Venezuela later today because I, I think it's important that the Washington community, both in the government and outside the government, understand that we're not going to be able to turn the oil faucet back on anytime soon in Venezuela, just like we couldn't turn the oil faucet back on in Iraq. And that may mean that if, if, if and when the good guys win, and I hope they win today in Venezuela, we may be entering into a very complicated and long-term situation. And for all the reasons you listed, whether it's because of geopolitical reasons or pandemics or potential exporting of people, they've exported several million people already, a safe haven for terrorists, possibly. Um, we're going to be stuck there for a long time, and we're probably going to have to pony up a significant bill in Venezuela. And at some point, we're going to have to have an honest moment to say we're going to have to plus up whatever we got in Venezuela, and someone's going to have to present the, the world with a bill. Now, I think we should burden share with the Europeans and others. So I think that's an example of a, of a place where I think we're going to have to, both through the multilaterals, but also through U.S. leadership, we're going to have to cough up some additional money. And so I think that's one. I think two others I just want to flag is Afghanistan. I just came back from Afghanistan. Um, we have made a lot of progress in Afghanistan. We have done a crappy job of explaining in simple English what all the progress that has happened. Um, I think that's a failure of the foreign policy elites. It's a potentially a failure of the development community for not speaking clearly enough. It's a failure of the Afghans for not talking enough about it. But there, if you look at there are 3 million girls in school, 26 million cell phones, major improvements in economics, uh, significant political gains. Uh, significant role for women, 20% of the women are in the, the formal workforce, there's been a, a, a sea change shift. It would be really, really bad, I think, if we 
if, if, if something were to, if we were to do something on a precipitated way that would, where we pulled the plug or did something that was, that was, that was rash. And one other is just about getting ahead and mitigating, because I think it's important. Um, we've got in Ethiopia, we've been waiting, this is the prime minister we've been waiting for in Ethiopia for 40 years. I sure, I pray every day that he is safe and, and okay, but there's a lot of challenges in the Horn of Africa and having a reformist, good uh, Ethiopian leader and some of the challenges there, that this is a moment to be kind of backing this person up. So I think about Venezuela, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, this is about either kind of mitigating or responding to a challenge or, or sustaining the gains. And so I think we have to kind of back up. If we want to achieve the sorts of things that you're describing, we probably have to find the, the money to do that. And, and so I worry when, when we put forward budgets for a third year in a row that aren't credible, and also that the Congress doesn't believe in, and, and pushes back on. You know, I think we're gonna, we're, we're just, it's, it, the, the, the resources that we're putting forward in, in, these, in these budgets aren't, aren't, don't reflect, I think, some of the challenges and realities. So do you wanna respond to that? That's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a tough one, and I think the Foreign Assistance Review is probably the hardest interagency discussion I've seen take place in my short tenure. Um, um, in government, yeah. and, but it has to happen. Um, and so you have mentioned some of the world's hotspots in Afghanistan. I think we have, part of the problem is one of strategic communications about the progress on the peace um, negotiations and what we're actually doing there. But again, I think we have to find a way to talk to the American public about um, how long we are going to be there and how much more money we can put in. So I'm um, not suggesting um, that you know there is a precipitous withdrawal because we saw that with um, Pre President Barack Obama when we pulled out of Iraq and what and look what has happened. But at the same time, um, it can't be an unending commitment to a country. Yeah. So um, if I had the answer for how much money in a foreign assistance budget for countries yeah. A, B, and C, I would probably pick up a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, but I don't have that answer. But I think my colleagues who are working on it, it's the hardest yeah. discussion I, I, we're having. I think, I, I think it is. Um, I think and it so is. I think that's important. On the African continent, I think look at our Africa strategy as um, um, Prosper forth, Africa. Prosper Africa, put it's forth a good thing. by um, John Bolton yep. at the Heritage Foundation a couple of months ago. There we're taking on the, the um, China challenge. But also um, what we discussed here today, which is how to help countries um, come to a better place in terms of economics and politics on their own um, and building their own capacity um, and not building dependencies and trying to find ways to do work around China's dependencies and a number of countries um, it's come to the point on the continent where the Chinese could just take the keys to the, the whole they're place. They're sticking a straw on the continent and sucking the rocks out and the, con yes. and the, and the agricultural products and everything else. I, I think you're right, Dr. Skinner. I do think we have always operated in the 70 years since the dawn of the Cold War, whether it was the Marshall Plan or the Alliance for Progress, there's always been either a geostrategic, we've always operated on foreign assistance with a, a concept of enlightened self-interest. And, I, and I, know you, of course, you of course know that. And um, 
but, but I think that in the case of Prosper Africa and our engagement in Africa, we absolutely should, we should think, use China as a, as a healthy wake-up call perhaps for us. To, we should be seeing Africa as an opportunity and not just a problem to be managed. The Chinese see Africa as an enormous opportunity. It's not, it's not one's grandparents, it's not my grandparents' Africa. It's richer, freer, more capable with a lot more options. And if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations of Africans, they're gonna take their business to the Chinese, you know? So I think it's very important that the administration put forward a concept of Prosper Africa. And we're working hard with uh, the administration to help them with that. I, I wanna make two other comments, if I might, Dr. Okay. Dr. Skinner. One is on the foreign policy review. I think, I think we need a top to bottom review of our assistance. And I think it's, I think the, the, the impetus for having a, a top to bottom review by the Trump administration is a good idea. I have been concerned about the process uh, by which it was done. I have not seen the documents. There's been sort of various leaked, leaked documents. I understand it's been classified. I'd actually like to do a bipartisan task force here to actually help do a track two like that because some of the, and then some of the folks who've been involved with it who are very bright people but don't know a lot about foreign assistance have you know have you know I've, I've had some concerns I've published some things about this so I think it's an important exercise and I think it's been a wake-up call to the aid community because I think we actually do need to have a top to bottom review for all the reasons the Trump administration but I worry that um, I've, you know I haven't seen it yet but I'm, I'm a little bit I've been a little concerned about the process and I've been a little concerned about how it how it's been done that um, so I think it's I think we we need to be doing something in the aid world that's on us that I don't think what's prompting it isn't just something that the Trump administration has come up with. I think there's actually probably a need for a, a full review. I just have been a little concerned about how the process has been run. And, you know, I haven't been able to, you know, I haven't been, I've asked to meet with, with uh, some of the folks at the White House leading it. And I haven't, I haven't, he hasn't, he's not responding to my emails. Can you help me with that, Dr. Um, Skinner? Yeah. Are you using the right email address? I am, yes, I am. <laughs> so I think, you know. I'm a persistent guy, too. So um, he hasn't responded. Well, let's talk offline. Can we do that? Yes. Yeah. Um, so. Um, on the foreign assistance review, I do think having outside voices about it, are, um, it's, it's crucial. But um, at the same time, um, some of the people who will ultimately deploy um, our foreign assistance have been at times unwilling to do the critical work of looking at foreign assistance. I think it's natural to defend I've got your a mortgage. I got a mortgage to cover and kids in private school. I mean, I, I want to protect my, you know, I understand there's a, you know, there's some perhaps inherent defensiveness. I get it. I'm in the business. I represent the community. Sure. And so I think um, being able to really look critically at what we're doing in the future, because the challenges, as I, I said earlier, are coming fast, and there are lots of them. And the ones that already exist don't seem to be off-boarding at all. So we're just piling on new ones. And I think we've, it's, it's, it's a hard issue, which brings in the issue of fragile states. This basket of issues, I think, is um, quite surprisingly really important for the Trump administration trying to get it right. So Dr. Skinner, that, this leads me to come back to, my, to what I wanted, my second point, which is about fragile states. Like I said earlier, we are going to be stuck with these countries. I don't, I think, it's great that we have a new stabilization strategy. I think it's great that there's some energy in the Hill. I think there's a political moment to do something. Uh -huh. So the thing, if, I, if I'm a simple guy, it just seems to me if you had one fix I would make, in addition to the data analytics, is about we need more folks that look like this guy. So this guy is the guy who wrote this book called War Comes to Gar Garmser, Carter Malkassian. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he's a, he was a State Department. He was fluent in Pashto. We need, we need something like 20% of the Foreign Service to learn really oddball, obscure languages. I'm not talking French and Spanish. Uh -huh. I'm talking like Pashto and Urdu uh, and Bahasa and Indonesian. And we need to like, we need to like give them a kicker for really getting like whatever the top, they've got those scores at the Foreign Service Institute yeah. for if you like get an A plus and whatever it is, ones or five, I forget if it's five or one. But we need, we need 20% of the Foreign Service to do that. I think we also need, Dr. Skinner, we need to have, a, we need to recruit people who are willing to make five or seven year tours of duty in these absolutely awful places. And when I was in Afghanistan, I wanted to hug the guy across the table who told me this is his fifth one year tour working on the energy program at AID. And I said, we need, we need 500 of you. Mm -hmm. So what we need is, in a country of 300 million people with, a, with, a, with an ethnically diverse population, Dr. Skinner, in my view, one of the things we have to do is I think we have to review sort of the Foreign Service and the personnel. I think it's great that we've got the strategy. I think we've enunciated, some, I think you're enunciating some important and timely things. I think it reflects, you know, a, a response to some, to some to significant needs that, you know, we're in the process of sort of refining. But it seems to me the one, if, if I had one thing I would ask, Dr. Skinner, is to look at the specific issue of personnel. We have in fragile states that um, my wife's fourth favorite economist after her father and her two brothers is Douglas North. And he wrote, a, a, he wrote about limited access orders and open access orders. If you have trouble sleeping at night, you can read about open access orders and limited access orders. Fragile states are limited access orders where violence is not controlled by the governments and there's all sorts of bad stuff in limited access orders. So in limited access orders, we need people who really know the players in the society who can speak those lang these oddball languages, dress like this guy, in the photo, if you can't see it, he's, he's, you know, he's dressed, he's ethnically appropriately dressed and can click with people. And you know what? We were talking about this when the book The Ugly American came out in 1958, that we needed people like this too. And so we, this is not a, a problem on fragile states of today. We've had this problem all along. So my ask would be is we need to be thinking about finding ways to encourage AID and State Department to not do one-year tours. We need them to do five-year tours in these places. If that means that we have to have something like the Navy SEALs, where like instead of doing 20 years, you do you get 15 and out. I know that may be blasphemy if you're in if you're you support the Foreign Service unions, and I think there's a role for Foreign Service. I think there's a, I believe in the Foreign Service. I believe in Foreign Service unions, but I think we're going to have to take a look at the system that was set up and make some adjustments. And so I think we're going to have to have people who serve for five or seven years. We need to reward people to do that. The World Bank's going to have to do this. They, they have too many people. I think when David Malpass is in his inbox, it's got to be to say, how are you going to set in those, those 30 or so countries that are going to be Ida countries that are going to, in essence, be fragile and conflict-affected states? I think it's pretty hard if, you're, if you've got a cushy gig living in Potomac and send your kid to Sidwell, it's pretty hard to say, oh, I want to, I want to, send, I want to go move to Juba. You know, so I think, I think we're going to have a problem of recruiting and we've got a problem of personnel. So I think it's great we've got a strategy. I think if I were in your shoes and thinking about the, given sort of this political moment, the thing that the Trump administration could do, which the Obama administration wanted to do but didn't, didn't, didn't do it, but you, I think you all could, is to make some kind of significant change on the personnel side because we're going to need folks to do that. And there was a problem in the 50s and it's even much more acute now. So 
So I, I've got my homework assignment, but I want to give you gently perhaps a homework assignment to take back to the State Department. Well, I think, uh, you know, I accept that, but I do want to say that I think you spend a little time at FSI, and their, their language training program is excellent, and we have more Foreign Service officers going for the critical languages than you, you would um, probably believe. Um, but furthermore, part of the domestic speaking tour of the Secretary um, is to get into parts of the country where we don't have foreign service officers. Um, and it's part of a recruitment tool. And many of idea. us in the senior leadership team are, are doing the same. So um, I think there's more going on in terms of a dynamic State Department than you would imagine. I'm one of the few English speakers in my own office. Um, and so I've got people who speak Hebrew, Arabic. I've got people coming who speak um, Dari and, and, and um, and, and Farsi, so I think every office is a lot more um, culturally and linguistically diverse than, you, than, and for policy planning, that is almost now for me a requirement for people who work on yeah. regions, and it hasn't always been that way. I think it's wonderful to hear Dr. Skinner because I think we need to do, I think that's the right direction, but I'd like to see a lot more of that. I was, yeah. When I was at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan, I was very taken with all the wonderful, hardworking people who have made a big sacrifice to serve over there. But very few of them sp spoke um, at, the, at the native level, the languages that we need. And so I, I, I'm glad to see that FSI is doing that. I'm glad to see that the administration is pushing and recruiting folks from perhaps non-traditional areas. But I think whatever you're doing, we need to see a lot more of it, if I would put Agreed. it that way. I would put it that way. Dr. Skinner, I am very grateful that you've agreed to take the time to be with us. I know you've got some other things, but um, could I ask you all to just uh, Give Dr. Skinner a round of applause, Thank and, you. and maybe you just you might have a few minutes to just stick around your state conference. I will do that. Okay. Thank you. Thank okay. you okay, so Dr. much. This is great. Okay. Thanks. It was Come perfect. back anytime, and yes. we'll do this again. Okay. Yeah. okay. Come up and say hello to Dr. Oh, Skinner. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.